Welcome to MicroCollege, a podcast exploring innovative, place-based, and humanly scaled responses to the crises in higher education, meaning, and discourse in our time. Everyone knows that colleges and universities are at a breaking point, but what can be done? I'm Jacob Hunt, the director of Thoreau College, a micro-college in Viroqua, Wisconsin. Join us each week as we tackle this question head-on. Welcome to MicroCollege. Today, we are honored to have as a guest, Austin Smith, who is, is a new resident here in southwestern Wisconsin in the Viroqua area. Um, he comes to us uh, most recently via uh, the way of Stanford University, which is always an interesting connection to here, here in our small town uh, of Wisconsin. Um, Austin is a poet, um, grew up on a farm, and um, uh, yeah, this, Austin, I'd love to, to ask you to introduce yourself, tell us your story a bit. Sure. Thanks so much for having me, Jacob. I really appreciate it. Um, I grew up on a dairy farm in northwestern Illinois. Um, we had a small family dairy farm there, um, had been in our family for several generations. And interestingly enough, my dad is also a poet. Uh, mm. So I kind of grew up um, with a love for poetry as well as a love for, uh, for the culture of the small family dairy farm there in Illinois. Um, my family had to sell our farm in about 2008 and um, my parents now live in southwestern Wisconsin and that's one of the reasons that uh, that I landed in Viroqua to be closer to my family. Cool yeah the poetry and dairy farming right there's <laughs> farming is is a I think that that's a special connection right um, so yeah who, who are some of your your inspirations as, as, a, as a poet? So yeah, when I was growing up, my dad um, was very influenced as a poet himself by writers such as Wendell Berry, uh, Gary Snyder, um, poets and writers in that milieu. In fact, um, my dad had the opportunity when I was just uh, about 12 years old to meet the poet Gary Snyder. Wow. Um, he came and visited my dad on the dairy farm. Uh, so it was a really uh, formative time for a young poet. I knew I wanted to write poems from the time I was a little kid. A funny story I tell is that I had a poetry notebook. I was very precocious. I spelled poetry P-O-E-T-R-E-Y, so I <laughs> added an extra E there. But I basically wanted to be a poet um, just from a very, very young age, and I was lucky to have very supportive parents. Um, and then as I matured as a young poet, um, in writing mostly about my experience growing up on the farm, those same writers who influenced my dad were certainly influential for me, and I continue to be influenced by the work of Wendell Berry to the point where my dog's name is Wendell. <laughs> um, <laughs> Gary Snyder has been very uh, important to me. Um, writers, Midwestern writers and poets um, have been very influen influential for me, and my dad himself um, has been a very, very uh, strong influence in my own work. Cool. Yeah. Wendell Berry. Uh, yeah. Hopefully most of our readers or our listeners have heard of Wendell Berry. Um, Wendell Berry, Gary Snyder. These are these are really important figures in in the culture, people that you know that people should know about. Um, but I think, yeah, this this this, you know, the marriage of farming, agriculture, you know, the, the practical kind of natural world and and language is, is part of our heritage here as, um, you know, Thoreau was a great example of a practitioner of this kind of thing. Henry David Thoreau, the American transcendentalist, and uh, you know, this this is certainly part of woven into the curriculum of Thoreau College, right? This combination of, of things you do with your hands, interactions with with living things, plants and the animals, and and tools, things like this are are things to make make language with, right? 
That's really an interesting point, and, and I think often about the origin of the word verse, which is um, the turn at the end of a furrow. So when I was reading and writing poems, even as a little kid, uh, it's a little strange, but I always had the image of a poem as looking almost like an open field. Mm -hmm. And so I think of poetry as a kind of agriculture. You're um, not to you know to belabor the metaphor, but you're you're planting language, and it's hopefully being reaped by the reader. And my dad and I both kind of think about poetry and farming as be very connected, um, as a kind of uh, harvest, if you will. So, um, and I should say, my dad, um, he was a dairy farmer for thirty years, and so his poems are about that experience of being a, a dairy farmer and losing or um, deciding, I should say, uh, to give up the farm and to find a new life in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. So it's not all sorrowful, but um, I think that poetry is uniquely suited for writing um, both celebratory moments and grief-filled moments. Um, and yeah, elegies. And elegies, absolutely, yeah. so, right. That image is of the, the page as a field, right, is something, I remember um, reading that, uh, you know, the ancient Greeks, uh, you know, there was a time before it was decided whether you'd write right or left, right, in the Greek language. And for a while, certain modes of writing, it was it was actually both. You would go across the page from left to right, and then you would turn from right to left. And this is called boostrophon, which means ox turning, right, wow. is the, the, actually the, the pattern of, of, of plowing with an oxen across a, across a page. <laughs> That is awesome. <laughs> I love that. That is something I was not aware of. Cool. Well, yeah. So that that's that's a potent image. Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like maybe this is a good moment to to ask you. Could you give us a little taste of your verse? Absolutely. <laughs> um, so I'm going to be reading from uh, a collection called Flyover Country. Um, I decided to call this book Flyover Country to kind of critique that term, which I think many of us in the Midwest find offensive. Um, this idea of the Midwest as a place that's merely for flying over. Um, it also has a political element in that I've written a lot about American foreign policy um, in a critical way mm. and uh, was thinking about America herself as being a sort of flyover country, um, carrying out drone strikes abroad and things of that nature. So. Maybe I'll read a poem that kind of combines the um, Midwestern subject matter with that more political subject matter. Uh, the first poem I'll read is called Cat Moving Kittens. We must have known, even as we reached down to touch them, where we'd found them, shut-eyed and trembling, under a straw bale, in the haymow, that she would move them that night under cover of darkness, and that by finding them, we were making certain we wouldn't see them again until we saw them crouching under the pickup like sullen teens, having gone as wild by then as they'd gone still in her mouth. That night, she made a decision any mother might make upon guessing the intentions of the state to go and to go now, taking everything you love between your teeth. Hmm. Yeah, that's vivid. That's a, that 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 observation of the cat, <laughs> the mother yeah. cat moving the kittens, is very familiar. Yeah, I think it would be familiar to to anyone who's grown up in the country. And uh, the the poem came to me because I was remembering this very innocent farm boy experience of looking for the litter of kittens and in the haymow, 
But of course, once you find the kittens, the mother starts to have to move them. And I just, uh, with various things in the news, refugee crisis, things of a political nature, I started to kind of reimagine this scene in a darker way. A lot of my poems celebrate the Midwest, but also kind of critique. I don't want to say critique the experience of finding kittens in the haymow, but sort of complicate um, yeah. these more idyllic um, ideas. Uh, you know, I've many times when I tell people, say in California, that I grew up on a farm, they say, how quaint, you know, how, how nice. And <laughs> I, I always kind of feel a little bit, I chafe against that a little bit. It's a complicated, complicated life on the farm. Um, so my poems, I hope, uh, hope to speak to that a little. Mm. I'm reminded of Robert Burns, Robert mm -hmm. Burns' poem about the <laughs> the mice in the field. What's the title of that poem? I don't remember. remember. I'm being a bad student of poetry here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, famous poem. But that, that there is, I think that that is certainly something that that I see is it's a reason for for bringing students into agricultural experiences. It's such a it's a rare part. I mean, such a you probably know the number. It's like two or three percent of our population now has some direct involvement with agriculture. Um, and yet it's such a storehouse for our language and for our mental kind of imaginary um, that uh, that if it's not a primary experience, you know, growing up, it's a person's life is really enriched by experiences with cats and dogs, at least. But, yeah. you know, sheep and chickens and yeah. and you know wild animals as well. Um, our students, a number of them here have, have become hunters or, or at least like, you know, spent a lot of time in the, in the forest and watch mm -hmm. wild animals. Um, but also plants and things in the garden as well. It's such a such an important thing. I feel so fortunate to have grown up on a farm. Um, I just remember one night, uh, you know, oftentimes a calf would be born at the precise, you know, wrong time, the <laughs> middle of the night. And uh, remember the cow went down after giving birth to this calf. Um, you know, she was she was down and she was in dire straits. And my dad was dragging the calf back and forth in front of her to kind of show her what she had to live for, more or less. And it's just one of those childhood memories that I'll never, you know, I remember feeling so grateful that I had that experience of seeing life and death and this very, um, it was never hidden on the farm. It mm -hmm. was, you know, as you know, um, it's right there before your eyes. And especially when you're a kid, those moments are just really, really formative. So... I try to speak to that as well in my work and remember uh, how, yeah, it is it is a unique upbringing. Um, and so I'm very lucky to have grown up there. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, so you you grew you grew up on the farm there in in uh, northwestern Iowa. Um, Illinois, so, but or, sorry, Illinois. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Close by <to> Iowa. <laughs> Those I states yes, nearby. Sure. Um, <laughs> Same river. <laughs> right. Um, but there. Um, yeah, so so one of the things we ask everyone who comes on to micro college um, is is to talk a bit about your your kind of college years, that period of eighteen to twenty one years old um, that we are working with here at the college. Um, what what were you doing during that time period? What were what stands out as really like enriching experiences? What was frustrating? And where were you? Absolutely. So I had a very, let's say winding path through undergrad. Um, so I, I went to a small liberal arts school in central Illinois called Illinois Wesleyan. I was a runner. I went down there to run cross country and track. What happened though was that I encountered this amazing poetry teacher who is now one of my best friends. Um, I saw him the other day in fact, uh, named Michael Tooney and he, in a poetry class with him, I was kind of reminded of my love for poetry, which I had let wane in high school because it wasn't cool. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and the 
Illinois Wesleyan was a small enough school that there was an English house. And I actually had the experience of like hanging out on the porch with the faculty and, and getting to know them in such a personal way. That's one of the benefits of a smaller school, right? Um, but I became a little restless there. Some, I changed my major. I decided to uh, spend some time at the Biosphere Two Institute mm-hmm. outside Tucson, Arizona, which if you haven't heard of it, is a really interesting program. Um, and that was a really in-depth kind of field, field-based environmental studies program that I did for a semester. I went to India for seven months to study abroad and travel. I ultimately transferred to the University of Wisconsin in Madison, which in retrospect was a bit of a mistake in that I was a transfer student in a huge university, Mm -hmm. no more English house, no more professors who know you by your first name, Um, big lectures. I felt a little bit lost in in the mix at Madison. It was probably a little too late in my academic career to transfer into a new place. Um, so in, in when I look back in retrospect, I think my, mo- my most, the, fruit, the most fruitful time for me as an undergrad were those, those experiences where I felt held by a smaller community, whether it was at the English House or at the Biosphere 2 Institute. Um, and yeah, those, those moments I think were where I felt most connected and most supported. Hmm. Whereas when I was in a big lecture hall with a teaching assistant, I felt a little lost um, and a little less invested in my education. So um, at yeah. the Biosphere too, were you doing things related to, to English and writing? There was a it was a very interesting program in that um, we didn't we didn't actually live inside of the <laughs> what is called the biodome. If you've ever seen the Polly Shore movie, it's pretty funny. Um, but there's a uh, there was at the time a program through Columbia University in New York City um, that was, it was an environmental studies program, but there was a writing aspect to it as well. Um, we were in, obviously in Arizona, so we were learning a lot about like riparian habitat and the culture and history of Southern Arizona, which was completely different. I'd never really been anywhere but the Midwest prior mm-hmm. to that. Um, so, and it was a small group of students and a really, really awesome group of faculty. I remember there were nights where they would gather and play music for us and we would go camping with them and uh, go on a lot of like um, day trips with the, with the faculty and they took us to the Grand Canyon and, um, you know, it was extremely intimate and, and connected group. Um, and part of it probably was, it was the very last semester before they closed the program. So oh, wow. I feel like there was a feeling of sort of nostalgia even baked into that experience. Um, but yeah, a very formative time for me. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was just what I needed at that time as an undergrad. Micro College is recorded in the broadcast studios of WDRT Viroqua 91.9 FM Driftless Community Radio on Main Street in Viroqua, Wisconsin. Thanks to Jim and all the folks at WDRT for the support of Thoreau College and the Micro College Podcast. Yeah, uh, do you, either at Wesleyan or at, um, or at UW-Madison, I mean, you, the experience of being <clears throat> from a farm or from a small town, coming into some more of a cosmopolitan context into a university or, or a larger town, a larger city, um, it's one of the kind of the classic experiences of the modern world. Right. I wonder what was that experience like for you? 
That was, that's a very good question because I think many of us who grow up on a farm, I mean, my, my parents were unique in that they, they really encouraged us to leave the farm. So my dad never mm -hmm. like encouraged my brothers and I, my, I have two brothers, one is a surgeon and one's a lawyer <laughs> and, uh, and I became a poet. So, um, it's one in every family. <laughs> yeah, <right>? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we were kind of encouraged to make lives off the farm. And, and so I kind of felt this um, sense of I wanted to have these experiences, like these broader experiences. I wanted to live in a city. I wanted to do all these things um, that felt very exciting and, and foreign to me. But, you know, when, you, when you've grown up in the country, it never leaves you. And so I was always called back to the Midwest. And I think it was a really nice mix, actually, when I look back on it, th this desire to grow and then this rootedness as well in mm -hmm. where I come from. Um, and I, I, this kind of oscillation between leaving and returning, which I've continued as an adult with my time in California, but always mm -hmm. coming back here. Now I think I'm pretty much here for good. So <laughs> that's great. You know, at some point you just make, make a home somewhere. Um, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that idea of, you know, the, uh, basically yearning for something but also having this rootedness mm -hmm. in, in where one came from. I think that that's a nice dynamic. So the muse kept speaking to you. Um, how was it that you decided to continue um, for a while in an academic track and end up being, being a teacher? Yeah, that, that happened, I can't say necessarily by choice, because I think my apprenticeship in poetry, which began when I was a kid, you know, watching my dad give poetry readings and meeting poets who would come visit him, um, just continued on. I, I went to two graduate programs for poetry. Um, to be honest, I just to, to be brutally honest, I had like a lot of undergraduate loans and I needed, needed to defer them. And mm -hmm. I also needed some health insurance and I didn't, I didn't know what else to do. Um, it was, I went to graduate school right around the time of the financial crisis mm -hmm. and um, it was a really wonderful supportive atmosphere. I did um, a two-year program at the University of California, Davis, and then I did another two-year program at the University of Virginia. And to have those, well, total of four years to really focus on my work and to be supported by an academic institution, but in a smaller, in, again, you know, in a graduate program, you're in the smaller cohort. Mm -hmm. And so I found that really positive as well. Um, so I was basically just striving so hard to be a poet that I just um, kind of kept that going all the way through receiving a fellowship at Stanford, which turned into my lectureship that I've held for about eight years now. Mm -hmm. um, and I love teaching. And uh, I think I, I think that my time as a student, you know, I, I had an idea for what I wanted edu my education to be. And as a teacher, I was able to kind of offer that to the students in a, in a sense. Um, so it was almost like a kind of pain back. Mm -hmm. um, and I enjoyed that, that process of becoming a teacher after having been a student for honestly so long. <laughs> 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 yeah. So certainly one of the reasons we were interested in having talking with you here on, on the podcast um, was your experience at Stanford. And um, you know, we've, we've framed um, what we're doing on the podcast and also to a certain degree at Thoreau College. You know, part of it is a critique of, of the system as it exists. Um, we haven't talked a lot about that 
really in much of our, our previous episodes, a little bit through people's biographies, but but by and large we've been talking about people's projects, you know, or, or what we're doing at Thoreau College and elsewhere, um, other people's projects. But I guess um, I wondered if you could reflect a little bit on this time in the in a major kind of elite institution of higher education in the humanities. Um, you know, wh what do you what do you see there? You know, about about the state of our culture and about about the way that higher education is working. Yeah, so it's been really interesting, you know, being at Stanford, um, having the privilege of teaching there and, and having a job that I know many, many of my friends and colleagues at other institutions feel is kind of the, um, the cream of the crop, really, to be teaching at an institution like Stanford. For me, um, Stanford is unique in that it is a school that is very, well, is literally in Silicon Valley. And so the, some of the principles of the university, I think, are aligned more with um, that uh, with, part of our culture. With a, with a yeah, business, a corporate kind of business, focus. Business, corporate, tech. Yeah. And yet, one thing that I think is a little frustrating for me is that Stanford um, purports to be this, this very, a, a school that cares very deeply about the humanities. Unfortunately, those of us who do care about the humanities there feel quite beleaguered. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was um, a lecturer living in the Bay Area. It's very, very difficult to make a living off of the lecturer's salary. And to have this passion for teaching the humanities at a place where one does not feel exactly valued by the institution was a, a constant source of frustration. Unfortunately, it actually impacts how we teach um, I, I'm, I'm not saying this just for myself. There is a, a, a decline in morale um, a sp across the um, higher ed spectrum. There is a, as you know, um, a kind of divide between the tenured faculty at certain schools and those of us who are coming up now in, in higher ed who um, are really struggling as adjuncts or lecturers. And, it's, it's a shame because we were the ones at Stanford who had the most interaction with the undergraduate community. Um, the tenured faculty teaches less, they're less involved. Mm -hmm. um, and so it makes this very strange dynamic. I mean, the very thing I loved about the English house at Illinois Wesleyan was that connection I felt to faculty who at Wesleyan were, were tenured faculty. And you know, I found that at that school and I think that I've always desired that dynamic but to not see it um, not see it supported at a school that has so many resources mm -hmm. was just a, a, a constant source of frustration for me. So I hope that that gets at some, some dynamic mm -hmm. of um, feeling, I, the only word I can think of is beleaguered, um, mm -hmm. feeling like we have this mission and we're, 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 we're called to, to teach our, our passion and mine is poetry, um, but to see to see how difficult it is to kind of maintain that passion in a working career, um, it, it, we ended up getting very, very demoralizing, honestly. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. one of the things that's important to me as an educator, um, and you know, as a, as working to, to to establish something like Thoreau College, is is to make explicit to myself at least, and to to everyone you know that we're working with, is you know I think education really has to have an explicit theory of of what a human being is, an anthropology of some kind, right? About human development, about about you know what what it is to lead a 
a fulfilled and and human life um and yeah a system of there a system of values you could say um i'm wondering if you know explicitly or implicitly um, could you say in the institution that you were in there what what is the theory of the human being what's the anthropology that that is ex being expressed there so i think that um and i don't want to speak too critically but i feel Stanford maybe pays some lip service to the idea of the fully rounded undergraduate who comes through. Um, they have a great books program. They have a humanities center. There's a lot of amazing things that happen there. But I, if I could, if I had a dollar for every student who came to my office and said, you know, I really loved your class. I really, I want to, I want to be a poet, but I'm, I'm, I'm computer science <laughs> because I feel such pressure. They, they're, and that's a particularly, um, high pressure place mm -hmm. um a lot of those students are being fed right into like it's interesting if you haven't been to stanford downtown palo alto the main street is university avenue and it literally leads into palm drive which is the drive that leads into stanford so there's there's almost a literal um conveyor belt, conveyor belt <laughs> if you will um and it the saddest thing was that you know i i studied <laughs> My, I mentioned earlier my brother became a surgeon. I had originally been a pre-med <laughs> major, which is laughable now when I think of that. But I just encountered this teacher who reminded me of what I was passionate about. It, and I just I decided to go into this world and this life. And um, I don't know that the culture of that particular institution, Stanford, um, supports students who might be, who, who might make that that, you know, maybe rarer life path. Um, mm -hmm. It's not that they don't want to, it's just don't, I just don't know that they feel as supported in that as they might. I, I'm, I feel like I'm wandering a little bit in my answer here, but... Um, it was a hard yeah. question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be fair as well, because yeah. um, I, I do want to acknowledge that, there, that, that it is a supportive place in, in many ways, but in others I felt, um, it just felt a kind of, constant sense of grief um, when I was teaching because I would have these great students who were clearly deeply invested in this life in the humanities, but at the last minute they would take that familiar turn towards, mm -hmm. and I'm not, I'm not disparaging STEM fields or tech, but um, it just felt like more often than not, students were not finding the encouragement to pursue that path. Mm -hmm. um, so. Do you do you have a sense of why why was the institution offering poetry classes at all? Yeah, very good question. I, um. I, I ask that because part of my undergraduate education was in in Eastern Europe. Um, it was an American you know, liberal arts college, the American University of, in Bulgaria. Mm -hmm. But um, so but it was very countercultural in that place in the sense that it was doing liberal arts, right? Much of the world has no such idea, right? And and I, I spent my time as a student spending a lot of time explaining to other students why they might have to take a, a literature class yeah. or a history class. Yeah. <laughs> it made sense to me because, but it was culturally specific. But most most part of the world, they they wouldn't ask a person who's going to be you know in computer science or pre med or whatever to take a poetry class or even offer mm -hmm. them that, that opportunity. Honestly, right. This is the thing: is that um, the creative writing department at Stanford is the largest department for student enrollment at the university. Now, this is the problem, though, is that a lot of students, I, I learned one year that students called creative writing classes fuzzy classes. Mm -hmm. 
um, which I had never heard before, that that created, um, let's just say I lost it. <laughs> I, I went completely ballistic in class because I don't think there's anything fuzzy about studying poetry. Um, so there's an idea that these are easy classes, that they're kind of easy credits. Um, I have a lot of athletes. <laughs> I have a lot of um, seniors, you know, and they say that they just, they wanted to take a poetry class before they graduate and go work for Facebook. Um, that to me is the problem, right? Mm -hmm. Is that um, they should not be seeing the class as this thing that they can kind of like, oh, just just one last little fun class before I graduate. It should be worked in in such a way that it's that it feels interwoven with their, you know, I have no problem with them being computer science majors, but I did have a problem feeling like what I was so passionate about was to them just this kind of fuzzy thing. And uh, I don't, so I, I don't know, I think that the university, to be, to be honest, I think that there are poetry classes because they're popular, mm -hmm. but I don't think that they are um, popular for the right reason, probably, so. Yeah, maybe, could you, could you say, if, if we were to organize things, you know, convince people to think about it differently, so let's say a person is, their, their work is going to be in, in computer science or in, or in finance or mm -hmm. in, you know, or in medical field, something like that. Like, why, why should they take, why should they, why should poetry be part of their education? Yeah, so I feel like, well, to backtrack just really quickly, one reason why we call them fuzzy classes is harder to quantify, right? It's right. harder to quantify how they do in these classes. And therefore, I mean, I constantly got questions about how am I going to be graded? And what I'm looking for is improvement and effort and, and frankly, um, investment in their own. Basically, you're asking them to invest in their own life. You're, you know, care enough about your own life experiences in your writing to to, to take this seriously mm -hmm. because I can't give that to you. I can't force you to take your own life seriously, which as poets, we're bringing our own life and experience to the page. So you're actually asking them to make this big leap, I feel like. Um, so it's it's almost like they're not prepared to do that. Um, they've, they've been taught that this is a class in which they receive a grade. There are certain things they have to do to receive that grade. They wanna know what is A work, what is B work? Um, it's really hard to convey to them that A work is when you put a lot of skin in this, where you really, <laughs> you, you, you know, you really work to make this poem as strong as possible because you care about it, you know? Um, so again, I feel like I'm wondering a little bit, but I think that is the essential issue is that they, they come to classes with a kind of quantitative framework in mind. And this is just a completely different, um, we're coming at it from a completely different angle. And at a school like Stanford is particularly hard, but I would imagine it would be hard at any institution, mm -hmm. really. The Driftless Folk School, located in the beautiful rolling hills and valleys of Southwest Wisconsin, is a community of lifelong learners dedicated to cultivating personal and cultural resilience through hands-on educational experiences. The Driftless Folk School offers classes in agriculture, land stewardship, natural history, folk arts and crafts, herbalism, wilderness skills, and more. For further information on the Driftless Folk School, visit us at driftlessfolkschool.org on the World Wide Web. The, those elite institutions have their own sets of, of issues, it does seem. Are you familiar with the thesis of William Dershowitz, The Excellent Sheep? 
I've heard of this writer, um, but no, I'm not. Well, so yeah. he, he was a professor, a literature professor at, at Yale, um, mm -hmm. and his book um, really is an observation of, of students who are going through not just Yale, but but the kind of systems that lead the student, you know, the majority of students, these kind of very hyper-competitive, very, like, output kind of driven institutions. And what he finds them is to be very risk-averse, right? Yeah. That they are, um, you know, the, the, the incentives are very clear, they're very strong, they, they, they certainly know how to work on the classes that have a strong payoff, but they, they, for literature <laughs> professor, and you could say a person concerned about the inner life and about, like, the ethical and, like, the qualitative quantity quality of our... Um, Civilization, it's really concerning, right? Because these people are the people who will, who will run the world, right? Who do run the world, and and if they if they are only quantitative, right? And they know how to how to operate an algorithm, right? Which is how to get a good grade in a, in a Stanford class, then that's that's quite different from from creating things that are like good, beautiful, and true. Yeah, and it's <laughs> and I don't want to fall into the tired um, critique of like tech because and like uh, no one reads anymore, and I do think that there is an issue with attention span and focus. But I had a student once come to me and say, "I'm working on on an app to identify the moment of highest suspense in say an Edgar Allan Poe story," and I said to the student, "Well, I can show you the." moment of highest suspense it's it's you know what you're doing here is sort of not that really that interesting but um so yeah this i i definitely feel that there is they are very 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 smart um extremely smart but there are other aspects of their i guess you could say development that i feel are being are atrophying a little bit because of the focus on those smarts and what you described mm -hmm. as being they're they're basically very adept at certain things and that's great but it's almost like someone with like a huge bicep and really small tricep or something there's an imbalance of muscle <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know yeah <laughs> so that happening. that you know, for, for me that's that's certainly something I appreciate about deep springs and and mm -hmm. of that type of education which is not just intellectual um, especially for the young person as I certainly was who was oriented towards the intellectual right <laughs> um, and the, the students who end up at deep springs um, are are that kind of student that they're selected for their ability to write and for their verbal kind of capacity their scores and things like that um, and it puts them into an environment where they they're not only having to do that right they're they're having to work with cows yeah and absolutely. with like yeah. rusty old machinery and with each other actually yeah. decision making in very complex kind of moral and practical decision making um, and I think that, that that is really built into the into the pedagogy and really the, the theory of of the human being, the anthropology of, that expressed in Deep Springs and in institutions like Thoreau College, where we are um, you're asking people to do things that are that are you know across the spectrum, all of which are challenging, all of which are complex. Yeah. And my hope is that that every student is is challenged every day in some different part of themselves here. That's so awesome because my favorite class at Stanford that I taught was a nature writing class. And one thing we did would take a field trip to the coast to a friend's farm, and they would help on the farm. And then we would go to this cave on the coast, and I would say, build a fire. And it was amazing you know, to watch them <laughs> try to work together to build a fire, which many of them just didn't know how to do. And I didn't help them with it. Um, they had to figure it out. I think they gleefully burned some of the pa papers that I had handed out earlier in the semester. <laughs> Paper, yeah. yeah. But... Um, 
it was just, you know, many of them never had never even been out to the coast. You know, they didn't get out, off of campus. Um, they just didn't have a lot of opportunities to do, to just like flex other, other muscles. That's the metaphor that's coming to mind, I guess, is that they just didn't have those opportunities. And I would, I was really trying so hard in a, in an institution that maybe is not set up for the kind of education that I admire so much about Thoreau College and Black Mountain and Deep Springs. Uh, I was trying to bring some of that in there and I th I'm proud of that but I, I think ultimately it's you know maybe the institution is just not shaped for that I, I, I that seems a little pessimistic to say mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm yeah. increasingly more interested in schools that are basically oriented that way from the jump yeah. you know so yeah, yeah for me it is important you know I do think you know, these students who are going to Stanford and institutions like that are consequential in our world in outsized yeah, kind of ways so yeah. for them yeah I think it's especially important for people to have yeah. <laughs> those it's important for everyone to have this variety of experience but it's really noticeable when when it's out of balance in that way yeah. um, I'm wondering you as, as a you know, you've talked about how important and given us an example of how important your farm experiences are for your poetry um, I'm wondering what you found um, for you know I'm assuming the majority of your students who didn't have that kind of experience like what 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 are they making poetry out of? <laughs> Where is their language coming from? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. Um, la last time I taught poetry, well, I'm ta teaching it technically right now, but in the spring I um, had a very s strange number of students from rural places. Mm. Uh, we were laughing. We had, I had students from Nebraska, rural Idaho, somewhere out east that was rural, and their poems were... Um, I, I don't know. I'm probably biased whenever I see like a combine in a poem. I just <laughs> I just love it. I'm like, this is a great poem. You know? <laughs> it doesn't really matter how good the poem is. There's a combine in it. Um, but they they had, there was something, there was some quality. I mean, I, I, I hesitate to put it this way, but the, they seem to have a larger wealth of imagery and experience to draw from. And, um, you know, I don't want to, imply that by not growing up on a farm you therefore couldn't become a good poet that's absolutely absolutely not true and obviously not true but um they seemed more fully developed in their life experiences and their basically tr storehouse of imagery that they could draw from um than students who had grown up in other places where maybe they hadn't had those experiences as much. Um, well, it's striking. It seems like you were at least sometimes trying to create opportunities for people, like how to start a fire in a cave by the sea. Right. Right. I did. Uh, we there's a student farm at, at Stanford that's really interesting, and we would go to the student farm and do some writing exercises there. Um, yeah, I would I would bring them to the art museum. I was I was just trying to the arboretum. Um, even the founders of Stanford are morbidly buried on the campus they're in a mausoleum <laughs> on the campus and this is my probably most unpopular exercise but i would bring my poetry students to the mausoleum <laughs> and say write an elegy for the founders of your university because stanford university is an interesting story in that it's named after the son of leland stanford and jane stanford his name was leland stanford jr he died as a boy in italy and so the whole school is like this memorial to this boy. And I think there's such a story in that. Huh. 
you know, so I um, was was trying to to get the students to see they're living in this kind of story, you know, um, by being there. But it was a, a struggle, <laughs> <laughs> and that was, I admit, a strange exercise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so your your teaching time there at Stanford encompassed the period before COVID and during COVID and up to the present day, you know, remotely you're teaching a bit now. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm wondering, do you have observations about the, um, how the students that you're working with, how the experience of teaching has evolved through that sequence of, of history? Well, it's, it's not, yeah, it's, it's been very, very strange. Um, and I, I think one could say across the board that, um, we are finding that it's it's been a really really difficult time for students. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that COVID has deeply affected uh, higher ed and not just the student body but the teachers as well. The move to online learning um, in in poetry classes was actually maybe not as disruptive as it might be for say like a biology lab. Mm-hmm. I think that we could transition to that kind of remote learning pretty easily. And I'm teaching online currently. I'll teach online later today, mm-hmm. um, but something is lost. I read, uh, I think I maybe mentioned it to you, a New York Times editorial about the effects of maybe COVID upon higher ed, and mm-hmm. a teacher had the observation that she discussion was so disappointing that she almost wondered whether the students were even aware that they were in person again, mm-hmm. <laughs> which sounds really strange, but I do sometimes think that the students almost even in person look a little bit like they're still on Zoom or something. There's a maybe a little bit of a loss of um, just the basic interaction and discussion. Um, I had many classes this past year where I really struggled to get students to engage um, they just seemed a little reluctant to lean in and say something. And that was not something that I had ever experienced at Stanford before because Stanford students are usually so verbose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a really, yeah, there's a social muscle which is mm-hmm. atrophied in, I think, not just students, but and many yeah, people in the, in the world right now. <laughs> yeah, I can't <laughs> I mean, blame them for it. It's, I mean, I, I had the experience you know, of, um, of being... Uh, physically flat out of my back for a couple of months last year. And it was striking how fast physical muscle atrophies, right? Oh, it yeah. took a while to learn yeah. how to walk normally, yeah. like a while. And I think you could see this in our whole society on a social level, just <laughs> the ability to, to have a conversation, yeah. to to not talk over each other and then not to like, and to just space things out and just, just to know what to say. Yeah. And I think that, that, that shows up so vividly in the classroom conversation. That's so, yeah, I feel I try to connect with the students on this. I try to say, you know, it's not equivalent, but my 10th day of college was 9-11. And I just remember, you know, starting off as a freshman and basically watching the news. That, that was, mm-hmm. we were told to go home and watch the watch the news by a teacher that, you know, I was in that class that morning. Um, so it's kind of trying to tell the students now they had not been born at the time, right. but that these these things happen sometimes as when you're a student, and I'm I'm sympathetic to this, you know. But um, I one thing I'll say is I worry that as teachers we might be not holding students responsible for really doing what one has to do in a class. Like I feel at times I was a little bit too <laughs> accommodating, mm-hmm. and Therefore, students kind of lost the the quality of education that I wanted to, mm-hmm. to give them. In other words, what I'm trying to say is um, maybe I could have been a little bit stricter 
um, and a little bit less accommodating, despite the very, very understandable challenges. Yeah. Does that make sense? I, absolutely. Okay. It's certainly something I wrestled <laughs> with as well. Um, it, there is, you know, there, there is this balance, you mm-hmm. know, between what you're saying. This is, you know, understanding the value of challenge, of rigor, of facing difficulty, of, you know, pushing through those moments of challenge. Yeah. And then an awareness of, of the real, like, catastrophic kind of mental health situation that we are Absolutely. in. Students yeah. and everybody in our society and how to, what is the role of, of a academic teacher, poetry teacher or whatever, um, or an institution in that, in that role. Gosh, and it it just, it really comes down to like, what is my intention? You know, is it to punish the student? You know, I had a student who basically didn't come to class the entire quarter, but because, um, I was being so accommodating, I gave them a decent grade, um, ultimately because I just didn't want to punish the student, but what I I felt ultimately just bad for them that they didn't have the experience of the class. They just they just missed the whole class and uh, yeah they got their grade but you know to me it was just like a failure um, on all sides and um, I don't know what to say about that you know I don't know how I feel about it. I could have like really held the student to account and made them come to class and, or else get a bad grade but I don't know what that would have done either. So mm-hmm. it's a really hard time. It's definitely a very difficult time right now to navigate. Yeah. yeah. So that, that brings me, one thing that you haven't mentioned about your biography and uh, is important to the context of micro colleges is you've had experiences in uh, living in, in like an intentional community. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about that experience and then what you took away from that? Yeah. So I, um, n- numerous times in my life, I've found myself in community. Um, I lived at a, in a really interesting housing cooperative when I was a graduate student at Davis. Um, on campus and so it was all students and we had gardens and we had chickens and it was just an amazing experience I got more out of that experience honestly than I did from my graduate classes in poetry Mm -hmm. I I, it was it was very fruitful and then I became very interested in this community in Missouri called the um, Possibility Alliance and spent some time there I've also had some experiences with the Catholic worker community um and, and this is obviously my interest in farming, but um, I, I'm really interested in basically different ways of um, attaining knowledge and conveying knowledge, um, maybe outside of the traditional academic context. Um, so like workshops and you know um, ways that we, we still shared uh, a lot of writing and, and, and intellectual work on the, on the farm that I was living on in Missouri. Um, these are not like, it's not like you, you have to choose between like an intellectual life and a life mm-hmm. that's focused more on, um, living on the land. I was, I'm really interested in communities that combine those two. I think the Catholic worker movement is a really good example of a community that strives to, um, marry an, a life of the intellect and the spirit with a life of labor on the land. So, um, that to me has always been a kind of ideal that I strive for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a golden <laughs> example. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's an ideal that goes back to the monastic communities mm-hmm. of the Middle Ages and, and far beyond that. Right, yeah. that that's a trade off of you know if you <laughs> being connected with the land and 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 the life of the mind and being separated. If there's a way that they can that cannot be true, that's really yeah. beautiful. Absolutely, and I see that in Thoreau and um, and in both the college and in the writer. I met the writer in that instance. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but in, it's true of both. And one of my heroes is Thomas Merton, the great Trappist monk, kind of a radical writer monk in the 1960s. And I just visited the monastery where he lived in Kentucky. And just reading his journals, just the, the almost seamless flow between the work of the monastery and his spiritual and intellectual and contemplative life. Like to me, that is really what I aspire towards as a, as a writer myself, so. Thoreau College is a leader in an emergent movement dedicated to the renewal and revitalization of higher education through the creation of new humanly scaled institutions with holistic curricula known as micro colleges. Thoreau College, higher education for the whole human being. So you're, you're Stanford students, and what, to what degree does, let's say, the spiritual or mm -hmm. like this, this, this interior, explicit interior experience um, or, or spiritual experience, to what degree does that enter into their poetry and their work with you? Oh, that's a great question as well. Um, my f the students who I most resonate with are the students who <laughs> tend to have a, some kind of a, a, a sense or a life of the spirit as well, and I don't... Um, bring my own spiritual life very much into the classroom because I don't feel that comfortable doing that. But um, my, for instance, my, I can truly say the best student I ever had at Stanford, I'm going to see her this weekend in Chicago. She's now at Chicago Divinity School. Mm -hmm. um, I just knew, like, she was teaching me more than I was teaching her when she was my student. Like, I just knew that there was something about Emily and now she's gone on to be a, an expert on the work of Simone Weil, and she's doing just amazing work at University of Chicago. Um, I don't think I would have connected with her had it not been for these other shared interests that we had that we were able to connect with. Honestly, in office hours is where I would mm -hmm. find the students who I most loved, you know, because they would come to see me, and I, I could open up a little more and say, "Hey, have you like read?" Sounds like you're interested in yeah. this and that, and uh, in a way that I wasn't as comfortable in a 15 student classroom. So, I mean, I, I've been a high school teacher for for approaching two decades now, or working with, and, and in that time period, I've observed there's a noticeable there, there's a generational change that has happened, um, and more and more students, you know, I'm finding have had no relationship to a religion or a spiritual practice at all. Previously, most of them had experiences of parents who had grown up Catholic, traditionally Jewish, you know, Lutheran, whatever, and then the parents had at some point in their youth dropped away, rejected that in some way. So they had that sort of negative image. We're in, I think, in the next generation where people just don't even have that, like, negative relationship. And that, it puts them in a really interesting space, right? I find you know, there, there's a lot of, like, curiosity, but a curiosity from a position of, of maybe, of, like, really no background at all. Yeah. It's so interesting that it's not negative; it's neutral. Actually, yeah. yeah. I mean, so yeah. I, I, just as an example, of what that looks like. I remember, you know, I've taught history of religions and things like that in high school. I remember bringing, you know, in the early years, during back in the mid two thousands, taking students on field trips and going into a church, let's say a Catholic church with a with the statue of the Virgin Mary, some mm -hmm. windows there, and and the students having kind of a, you know, like a really negative reaction to that explicitly environment, you know, religious environment. Yeah. Fast forward ten years later. 12 years later, you take a group of students into the same space, and they're like, huh, wow, that's really cool looking. They've never seen it before, right? <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's noteworthy kind of a change. That's so interesting. There's a great teacher of art history at Stanford named Alex Nemirov, and he, um, he's the son of the, a really great poet named Howard Nemirov, actually. 
but Alex's classes are obviously like art history. I mean, you have to have a sense of what like these, you know, iconographic <laughs> devotional paintings are about, you know, for you yeah, to really understand in particular, them. Yeah. yeah. So he's, I think, I don't know. I haven't talked to him about this, but you're probably having to do double duty and teach a little bit of religious history as mm-hmm. you, you know, this is, this is the Virgin Mary, you know, and I'm not, I'm not <laughs> saying that students aren't aware of that, but I feel like that some of that knowledge has been, has fallen away. The very thinnest kind of veneer, even yeah. for people who are so-called, you know, supposedly churchgoers or right. anything like that. Right. So it's very interesting. Yeah. I guess I, I'm wondering, you know, you, you are people coming to poetry seeking spiritual experiences or mm. finding them there. <laughs> um, okay, so let me see if I can say this in a... <laughs> <laughs> I am t- constantly trying to d- divest my students of the notion that poetry is um, uh, about, you know, this is going to sound very cliche, but like expressing the self or some political, particular political angle. I mean, I did just read a political poem with the Cat Moving Kittens poem, but I, I like to think that I came to the political obliquely. And... Um, John Keats, the poet, said that we dislike any art that has a palpable design upon us. And uh, I'm, I'm constantly trying to tell, you know, teach the students that a poem is not kind of like an essay. It's, it doesn't okay. have, it's not an op-ed. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know that they come to it with any kind of spiritual um, uh, framework, but I, I do think that they come to it with a kind of sense that this is the way that they're going to convey their political or personal belief system and i i just personally don't think that that's where that's best suited for poems but mm-hmm. so yeah. certain yeah genre of poetry where that's what it is but yeah, yeah. <laughs> could write national anthems or something like yeah that. exactly exactly <laughs> so um i'm trying to show them poems that do something slightly different and uh so well since you've brought up politics something that I, out here in the provinces i hear from from students um who've been in in the culture especially at college campuses is that um is a sense of, of the overwhelming presence of political questions to the degree that I've heard you know, multiple you know young people tell me that they really have to guard very closely what they say, what how they express themselves, and that there, there is an atmosphere of, of self censorship you know on mm-hmm. campuses. And I'm wondering if you have any observations of that dimension. Yeah, I think um, I mean I felt that a little bit myself um, just as a teacher that um, you know my politics are. <laughs> quite radical I feel but um I I, I definitely felt at times I, there were certain poems that I couldn't teach um students didn't seem to have as much a sense that a poem is a kind of I think of a poem as almost a performance like there's mm-hmm. there's a quality almost of um um artifice about it um so I was constantly trying to tell them you know the poet is different from the speaker of the poem like yeah this is the name of the poet but the speaker of the poem can be doing this very different thing. Maybe they're being sarcastic. Maybe they're trying to challenge you in some particular way. And I feel I felt like they were not able to make that division very easily, um, kind of yoking the poet to the poem. Um, so it's not answering your question, but in their own work, I felt that times um, there's a kind of superficial morality that I would see in, mm-hmm. in the poems where um, I didn't feel like they were really digging down into the complexities of an issue, which is, you know, poems are uniquely suited to do that. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I've, I've definitely, you know, heard from students the same thing. So, yeah. Yeah. but it's interesting, the poem that you read for us just a few minutes ago, um, you gave it 
you give us a little gloss <laughs> and interpretation of it before, which gave it a political context, which made sense hearing the poem. But without that gloss, it's, you can see that it would be a very powerful poem, even if you, but you might put it into a different context, right? There's a whole yeah. kind of a, a metaphysical kind of a, a set of relationships that are being expressed there through through this very concrete images that that could be political, but it could be something quite different than that too. Yeah, hopefully we're leaving room, you know, because I tell my students, you can't follow your poems into the world. You can't constantly be next to them, explaining them to people. They have to stand for themselves and speak for themselves. So, and and that's the joy of it is that, you know, people, they are op hopefully open to interpretation. So um, I almost feel strange glossing the poem myself, you know, <laughs> I'm offering it some context because I would It's hope your last it chance. You send it out in the world. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I felt weird if I had just read it and just been completely silent. So it's probably my own. Yeah, uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, well, on that, do, you, do you have another poem for I us? I do, yeah, sure. That'd be delightful. I think I might read a poem called... Um, I think I might read a poem called Country Things, which is about um, something we were talking about earlier, like the uh, the compromises maybe that one has to make living in the country, like the fact that it's not all just idyllic. There's like this other dimension um, to it, this darkness that I think is what makes it so valuable. Um, so there's my gloss for it. <laughs> Country Things. Some days even nature seems sinister Walking around the farm with a beer, seeking some solace after the evening news, you meet the cat you love, coming back from the windbreak, a rare songbird in his mouth. In the mulberry branches, the silkworms writhe in nests that, backlit by twilight, look like x-rays of lungs. In the pasture, the cow kicks at her calf and won't let her nurse, while in a seam of gleaming honey in the oak that lightning cleaved, the queen daintily eats her offspring. In the rafters of the barn, the starlings are pushing the owl's eggs out of the nest, while the owl herself is out hunting. Going in, you nearly step on a swarm of ants ravishing a butterfly, like pirates tearing a capsized ship down, its wings like torn sails. And the first thing you hear when you enter the kitchen is the snap of the mouse trap you set this morning, tired of being kept awake all night by their scratching in the walls. And so you are met with your own small act of cruelty, your contribution to the whole. With a pair of pliers that are themselves always biting something, you take the broke-necked mouse by the tail and throw it into the darkening yard, never knowing that in favor of it, the cat let go of the bird who was only stunned and whose song you woke to this morning. Hmm. Goosebumps there. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to write a poem about all the, the violence of n the natural world, but um, to offer a little bit of resurrection there at the end with the with the bird that goes free and who we wake to. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. There's only a few times in my teaching at the at the high school level that I taught poetry, but I think. Um, enough to, to think about why would you do poetry but my the favorite definition that I was brought to class was from Robert Graves I love him <laughs> from, the, from the white goddess who oh, says sure. that uh, the that. Uh, yeah the definition of poetry is any organization of words that causes the hair to stand up on the back of your arm <laughs> very good <laughs> or Emily Dickinson uh, the poem that makes you feel like the top of your head has been taken off right that's you know, <laughs> um, 
so I would tell the students this is what you should feel. If, yeah. you know, if it's <laughs> that's the that's the kind of goal. So So you're you've made uh, a choice to to leave the academy yeah. and to, to to move back to the Midwest. Can you talk about that? How how did that come about? Yeah, so I felt that my life had split and I was teaching but not teaching with my full heart. You know, I was um, becoming less and less invested in the students. I was becoming resentful of the students at times, which was a horrible feeling, really resentful of the institution. You know, just the the wealth, and particularly at Stanford and Silicon Valley, but in the whole Bay Area, while trying to make a living as a lecturer, was just becoming this, this source of great... Um, uh, bitterness and I didn't want to feel bitter any longer and um, I've uh, I've loved Viroqua for years now I've come up here mostly to do fly some fly fishing and just to uh, enjoy the driftless landscape and my parents live down near Spring Green and I had the opportunity to start working at Organic Valley and but I the real reason I think is to root myself in the Midwest which is where my work is rooted and um, to not feel this kind of cleaving in half all the time between my life as it was out there and kind of the archetypal sort of world that I try to draw from in my work. So that sounds a little bit highfalutin, but I feel I wanted to unify my life um, mm -hmm. a little bit by coming back. And um, I am going to miss teaching. Mm -hmm. Like This is my last week of teaching uh, this week. And I'm uh, feeling very, very upset about leaving the students um, because I did care so much about teaching. So mm. I don't think that I'll, I don't think I'm done for good. I think I just needed to do something different. So. <laughs> <laughs> so does, does teaching play uh, an essential role in your work as your own creative process? I think it does because I would, I, I taught out of the same it came from the same well that the work does. That, that could be very exhausting too. Uh -huh. I felt often that um, I wasn't writing as well or as much because I was giving of myself so much um, to the students and it felt almost like a kind of martyrdom. Um, I'm, I'm interested to see what it's gonna be like to do a job that doesn't draw from that well and to see whether I might have more for my own work. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not sure yet, so. It, yeah. it, it could turn out that I find that I really miss that engagement with teaching, writing, and writing. Um, mm -hmm. So we'll we'll see. Yeah. It's kind of yet to be determined. Yeah, that that seems like a real. It's a it's a common observation that 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 teaching and writing are part of the same psychic mm -hmm. complex. Certainly, of um, I've experienced it. You know, at the at our institutions I've been involved with, that the people who are writers sometime stop being teachers because I can't write while I'm teaching. And right? vice versa. And vice versa, <laughs> teachers right? Teachers stop being writers. <laughs> I, also, to be honest, like spending a lot of time with other people's words, um, yeah. I am very, I'm like a sponge and I'm not going to say that it like negatively influenced my writing, but it almost like blocked in a way, like having others, other work in my head blocked my own work at times. So I would write more in like breaks and unfortunately as a lecturer I'm teaching like that's why I'm teaching this summer right you end up teaching all the time <laughs> now you can't even go out of town and stuff yeah <laughs> you still have to work so <laughs> yeah yeah so 
Well, beautiful. Austin, thank you so much for spending some time with us here today. Thank yes. you for, for moving here to Viroqua. It pleasure was a pleasure. Here. And it is a pleasure. And thanks so much, Jacob, for inviting me on. I understand that you will have a podcast of your own soon. Yes. I wanted to mention that on Friday mornings at 930 I'm uh, going to have a podcast called Poets Table. You're on WDRT in Viroqua right. if you're in the area. Or, or you can stream it on the internet. That's right. And uh, we're going to be starting that in September. Um, and it's just a celebration of a particular poet each show. Uh, so I'll be sharing some poems by that poet and talking a little bit about their life and work. Cool. Look forward to that. Thank you, yeah. Austin. Thank you so much.